0: Good morning. It's my turn to say good morning and happy Thanksgiving and happy Advent. And it's hard to believe that another Advent season is here as we make our way towards Christmas and uh, remember kind of the story. And oftentimes Advent, we start with Luke chapter 1 or whatever it is. We start with the narratives of Mary and the Annunciation. But um, I wasn't content with that, so I thought we'd go back to the very beginning this morning. In Genesis chapter 1. But as we remember the Christmas story, it took place in a small quiet town in an out-of-the-way corner of the Roman Empire uh, where a teenage virgin gave birth to her first child. It was a boy. And at that moment, as the Christmas hymn tells us, the everlasting light shone in the dark streets of Bethlehem. You know You know the song, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And in this moment, pardon the pun, uh, this moment in Bethlehem was pregnant with significance. And that picture of of pregnancy is actually quite fitting as we think about Advent. Because I can think of no other human experience as as poignantly filled with hope and fear, both hope and fear, as when a woman is carrying and bearing a child. And having experienced multiple pregnancies and births, not me, I've never been pregnant... Uh, but Carrie and I intimately know both the hopes and the fears which pregnancy uniquely brings. The, the joy of, of being with child is wrapped up in the potential, the wonder of, of fertility and conception, the, the beauty of and the miracle of new life. Pregnancy is marked by hope, it's the hope of anticipation. There's nothing quite like being in a labor and delivery room and knowing that in a few moments you'll meet a new human. Watch them take their first breath and make their first noise and poop their first poop and all the things that they do. But you welcome them in and it's a miracle and it's a hope that, that you will meet this new little human and perhaps an illogical hope that the world will continue to be a decent place for them to live in and to thrive, but at the same time that we, that we walk with hope, pregnancy is also often marked with fear. Will this child be born healthy? Will she make it to full term? How much will it hurt to bring her into this world? What kind of complications will come with that? Do I have what it takes to be a parent? And to raise this child, fears and hopes both abound. Pregnancy carries with it then a unique interplay of both hope and fear. Barren women praying for, for and grieving the children which they could have. Miscarried or aborted children, grieved by mothers and fathers who long to hold and nurture and protect children who were taken too early women desiring husbands, and men wives, and finding none, continuing in loneliness and fearing a future of isolation. And as the hymn tells us, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Speaking specifically of a little town of Bethlehem, but during this Advent season, As we're reminded of the waiting, of of waiting for thousands of years for Christ's arrival and his coming into the world. We remember that the hopes and fears of all the years before Christ's coming and since find their meeting place, find their match in Jesus he is the only one who's vast enough to fulfill all of the deepest hopes of all the ages of humankind. And he is the only one who's strong enough to conquer our greatest fears. So, this season we look to Jesus and the story that leads up to him. And, and through this season of Advent, we'll consider each week the hopes and fears of the years as God's story began, which we'll look at today, and makes its way to Jesus. And we'll look specifically how this story is exemplified and played out in the stories of five different couples, five different men. And women. In particular, our focus will be on the way that God used these ordinary people, these ordinary men and women, to fulfill his eternal plan of salvation and his son, Jesus Christ. So if you would turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're new to the Bible or didn't bring your Bible, there should be one in the pew right behind you. And this is a great week to start reading the Bible because we're at the very beginning. You don't have to go look at the table of contents or anything, it's the very first chapter. Of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is a broad brush ode to God's creative power and his genius. And it shows us the, the days of creation, these six days of creation, that are marked all the way through with this constant refrain of God's approval. It says six times in Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. God made something and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good over and over again. Then we come to the sixth day and we meet a new kind of creature that God is making, that he's made. One who's created, it says, in the very image, after the very likeness of God himself. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And people, theologians, have have argued for centuries about what it means to be made in the image of God. What in the world does that mean? What is the exact nature of it? And the language of image supposes that mankind is made like God. Like a, like a mirror image or a picture of him. So like him in certain ways, but specifically in a likeness that reflects God in some sort. That is a picture of him. And the particular way in which God created humanity to reflect him is, is a representative of God's rule and authority over the realm in which he has placed him. Which in this context is the entire earth. So verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, God says to them after he blesses them, and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion. So human beings, both male and female, together were created to partner with God as his co-rulers, as his vice-regents, as as under-shepherds, if you will, as God established his kingdom on the whole earth. And then at the end of the day, after God has created mankind and placed him on the earth and blessed him and given him this mandate, the refrain changes in verse 31. And it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, but very good. And then we roll right into Genesis chapter 2, which is a complementary narrative to Genesis 1. So don't read Genesis 1 and then... That happens, and then Genesis 2 happens after it. Genesis 1 is really this broad, overarching picture of the creation. And Genesis 2 focuses in on something that happens on that sixth day of, of creation, of God creating mankind. So it's a more focused, filling in the details picture of the creation. And it tells us that God creates a man from the dust of the ground. And then he takes him and breathes into him the breath or the spirit, or the ruach of life. God breathes into him the spirit of life, and it says the man becomes the living creature. And then he takes him and places him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to work it and to protect it. And this garden is a place of abundance where God provides for all of the man's needs. And not only that, but God himself is present with the man in unmediated relationship. Like Doc said, Elsie is experiencing right now an unmediated, nothing between them relationship with God. And the garden is a place where heaven and earth come together and are united, where God's intention for fellowship and partnership with human beings is displayed. And although we, we think of Eden as being a perfect place, there was at the beginning an inherent problem. Remember that Genesis 1 ended with the creation, declared, and God declared it to be very good. But Genesis 2 very quickly reveals that we're not there yet. There's a crisis. There's something lacking. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord, then Yahweh God said, It is not good. It's not good. There's something not good. What is it? It's not good that man should be alone. So in the midst that all that God has seen and declared good, we find something that's not good. Something that is incomplete. We see then that in God's creation economy, a lone individual is not a good thing. Relationship is crucial to human identity, but thankfully God stands ready to resolve this problem, ready to fix it. The end of verse 18. I will make, God says, I will make him a helper fit for or corresponding to him. In other words, God would design and build a being who would be both like the man yet unlike the man in particular ways that would correspond to him, that would be a fit for him, that would harmonize with him and complete him. Now, God had also made all of these animals, right? And all these animals were like the man in one respect. The story tells us that they too were formed, it says, from the dust of the earth by God. So the commonality between the man and the animals was in their creatureliness. There's a shared connection because they come from the ground. They come from the earth. There's a connection with the earth as creatures made by God. And yet, however, the beasts and birds were also unlike the man in two important ways. And the first is that as an image bearer, The man was given authority over the animals. This is is displayed in the story by Adam having the privilege of naming the animals. And and so in, in the ancient Near East, naming something was to have authority over it. And so he expresses a benevolent, a good, and a personal loving authority over these animals by naming them. So that's one difference. He has authority over them. But secondly, though they they too were made from the dust of the earth, none of them was given the very breath of God himself as Adam was. So we see already two differences. There's something different between the animals and this man created in God's image. And now God brings all the animals before Adam. He names them all. And God's verdict and likely Adam's verdict in verse 20 is that there was not found a helper fit for him. There wasn't found a helper that corresponded to him. And for this reason then, verse 21, says that Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that Yahweh God, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And in this moment, God provides for the man the very thing that he needs. Someone who is both like and unlike him. As both complement and completion. And it's all very good because now the image of God finds its fullness in the world. Man and woman as little icons, little pictures of God set in his world, placed in his world, to reign and rule in partnership with one another and with him. And they're given the task of spreading God's dominion over the entire globe. And this, in my mind, is a beautiful picture of the way that things are supposed to be. But sadly, the story continues into Genesis 3. And I won't spend a lot of time rehearsing the story itself, you can read it for yourself. Most of us are familiar with it. But in the story, we have the craftiest of the creatures, the serpent, who comes to the woman and deceives her, tempting her to take and eat from the one tree which God has labeled off-limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent undermines God's word. Has, has God really said And he questions God's character, his goodness. And he successfully tempts the woman who takes from the fruit, or from the tree, eats of it, shares it with her husband who's with her. And as a result of that, their eyes are open. They realize that they're naked. They hide themselves, both from each other and from God. And they go so far as to find fig leaves and cover themselves with these fig leaves. And when God shows up, calls for them then confronts them in their disobedience. In that moment, they resort to blaming God, blaming each other, and blaming the serpent, doing everything but taking responsibility for their own actions. And they're in a predicament, and in response to this, God renders judgment on all three of them, the serpent, the woman, and the man. However, in the judgment and the fear that undoubtedly accompanied it, and by the way, I don't think there was fear in the world, before this, the fear that is now on them, what I want to point out in Genesis chapter 3, that there are actually three bells or three notes of hope ringing through this chapter. And the first note of hope is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says that God curses the serpent, makes it crawl around on its belly, but in doing so, he also issues a promise, which, according to its Latin name, which is the, called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. So in all of Scripture, the very first mention, the very first hope, the very first picture or, or echo of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God says this. He says to the serpent, "...I will put enmity, hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman." And between your offspring, or descendant, and her offspring, or descendant, he shall bruise your head. This descendant of the woman, serpent, will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's the promise that God gives in this moment, in this verse, that there will be two lines of descendants. One is the line of the serpent, The other is the line of the woman. One is the line of fear. The other is the line of hope. One is the line of curse. The other is the line of promise. One finds itself alive and well in hearts that are given over to sin and rebellion and violence. And the other winds its way through the history of a fallen yet righteous people who walk by faith and whose line of faithfulness is protected in a remnant which will continue and culminate in a child named Jesus. The first gospel is here in Genesis 3.15 as God promises these two lines and a descendant who will one day be the serpent crusher. The second promise is in verse 20. The second note of hope is found in the woman's name. So Genesis 3.20 tells us that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Even in the face of death, even in the face of the consequences of, of disobedience, God is in the business of resurrection. Resurrection. So for Eve to be the mother of all living is a sign of promise that death will not be the last word. That every single human birth is a gracious gift from the God who brings life to dead places. It's a picture and promise of resurrection that she is, even in the midst of death, the mother of all living. And then finally, the third and final Note of hope in chapter 3 is seen in verse 21 where God provides garments of grace for Adam and Eve. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And prefiguring kind of our, our own human disposition to attempt to cover our own sin and cover our own shame and hide from God, Adam and Eve used fig leaves to cover themselves. But God wasn't content to leave them to their own devices, and he provided for them a better clothing, a covering that would have required the life of an animal, the shedding of of blood, a substitute to cover their nakedness and their shame, and God provided through that sacrifice for them. So not only does God graciously provide the covering, they cannot provide for themselves, but in that provision, he foreshadows the ultimate provision for our sin and shame, the covering of righteousness that we receive through the sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the notes of hope and grace and promise here even in the most difficult, maybe the worst chapter of the Bible? They're there. God in the midst of our fear gives us hope. So with three notes of hope, Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden. They go into exile, where they must now make a way for themselves in the world, separated from unfettered access to God. They're they're exiled into a place of hope and fear. Hope in that Eve's name comes to fruition, and she bears two sons. Her first son, his name is Cain. Her second son, his name is Abel. But in this story, we know fear remains and threatens to eclipse hope as a a transmission of sin from generation to generation becomes clear as Cain, in jealousy, rises up and murders his brother Abel. Cain gives himself over to sin, over to its power, to its temptation, and the result is that one son lies dead with his blood oozing and seeping into the ground, and the other son is sent into even further exile. And the seed of the serpent becomes clear in this story and in the line of Cain's descendants as we come to the first genealogy of the Bible. And it shows a family line that is marked by violence, marked by bloodshed, Marked by arrogance and marked by oppression. The seed, of the descendants, the line of the serpent. And it's exemplified in this man named Lamech in, in chapter 4 of Genesis verses 23 and 24. who's a descendant of Cain and he's the first person that we see in the Bible to practice polygamy. He takes two wives for himself And then he gloats in his violence, and he says to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamex is seventy-sevenfold. So the story in Genesis 4 is being framed in such a way that we're made to wonder if God will keep his promise. Will God keep his promise? Will there be a seed? Will there be a descendant who will survive to crush the head of the serpent? Or will only the descendants of the serpent remain? Will violent, vengeful men like, like Lamech rule the earth in arrogance and oppression? Or can mankind continue? Will it only continue this way, where righteous humans like Abel are slaughtered on a whim and evil men flourish? But again, as God does, in the midst of fear and in distinct contrast to the line of Cain, God brings hope. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now here's the point. When all seems lost, God does not give up on humanity. He provides hope. And when it seems that the only thing that makes sense is fear, God offers both an antidote and an alternative to our fear. He meets our fears with hope. And in Jesus, our fear and hope meet. And the God who became one of us, a son of Adam in the line of Eve, and who now provides a way for each of us to call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. See, the first chapters of the Bible are chapters that are uniquely marked with hope and beauty, with rebellion, with grief. The relationship with purpose, with curse, with death. There are chapters in which fear and hope play off of each other in a tension which actually marks each of our lives. Our lives are marked in, with a tension between hope and fear. So, so during this Advent season, we must bring both our fears and our hopes to Jesus. In the birth of Adam and Eve's son, Seth reminds us that when hope seems lost, God shows up and provides. In his grace, he does not leave us alone. Just as Adam really should point us to a new and better Adam, Jesus, Seth also points us to a new and better Seth, a son who would be born the child of a virgin and small and sleepy town in Judea, who himself is a sign of hope for all humanity. A sign that in hope, we too can one day be reunited with God and freed from all of the fears that threaten to shackle us and overcome us and destroy us. The serpent crusher has come. He's come through the line of Seth to restore us to our original place as God's image bearers and partners with him in bringing his kingdom, his rule, his dominion to this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray with me. Jesus, we're so grateful that you came as the serpent crusher to end the works of the evil one, to end fear and put it to death. To end our shame, to take it away from us, to take our guilt away from us, to cover us graciously with the clothing of the righteousness of Christ. So this day, Lord, we ask for empowerment. We ask for the ability. We ask that you would put to death our own fears that creep up in our hearts and in our guts and in our very beings and create lives filled with anxiety and turmoil and stress. And death. Father, come and remind us of the life that you bring and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as we turn to him, as we celebrate him this morning, and as we wait for him to remember waiting for his birth. We also now wait in anticipation and faithfulness and faith for that other coming where there, there will be no question who is in charge. Now we be, well we, there will be no question of how things will be when all things will be made right. You will sit on your throne forever, and we will bow down and worship. We praise you, Jesus, for all that you do and all that you are. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.